the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast. <coughs> Allergic reactions to buffalo hides, black sparrows of doom, and argumentative scarecrows. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with debut novelist Sonia Oren Lyrist. Sonia's new book is a high fantasy called The Seer. Now, I think this is a really terrific novel with great world building and compelling characters in action. I highly recommend it, and we'll talk more with Sonia about it momentarily. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Now, here's the news. Happy April Fool's Day, but this is no April Fool's. The new April hardcovers and trade paperbacks are here. These include an all-new entry in the Serrated Edge series by Mercedes Lackey and new author writing with Misty, Cody Martin. This one is called Silence, and it's the ninth book in this venerable and venerated series. In Silence, a young woman finds herself forced to live in the run-down and dying town of Silence, Maine. She's been returned to the custody of her alcoholic mother. But there are strange things moving beneath the surface of the shabby town, terrible plots in play and deadly players in the game, and Stacy is about to find herself caught in the middle of it all. Hint, there may be elf politics involved here. Also out this month is Shooting the Rift by Alex Stewart. This is a space opera with a humorous edge to it. Cast out by his family and exiled from the Rimworld Commonwealth, Simon Forrester must find a new life for himself as an apprentice to the powerful Commerce Guild. But others aboard the merchant vessel's stacked deck have a hidden agenda that might lead directly to interstellar war. Simon finds himself forced to choose between old and new loyalties with the fate of an empire at stake. And new in the teen section of your favorite bookseller, whether that's online or in the bookstore, is Changeling's Island by Dave Freer. Now this is a book that's eminently readable by adults as well. It's a great novel. I really recommend it. This one is full of magic, both Celtic and Aboriginal. It's set on the remote island where Dave Freer actually lives, and he does a beautiful job of evoking the place and the can-do attitude of the group of people who inhabit the land. Plus, it's an exciting adventure and coming-of-age story. We have a great interview with Dave coming up soon on a podcast talking about Flinders Island, which is the name of the place, and Changeling's Island, the name of the book. Silence. Shooting the Rift and Changeling's Island are now available at booksellers everywhere. Want to welcome Sonia Oren Lyris to the podcast. Hi, Sonia. Hello, Tony. Sonia Oren Lyris's fiction includes fantasy, horror, mainstream, science fiction, software documentation. Wait a minute, that's not fiction, or is it? And business plans. Oh, I get it. That's a joke. Okay. It's, <laughs> yeah. Yes, and it's a funny one, too. Uh -huh. It must have been. She has a showdown in Aikido. She can wield a range of weapons and dances Argentine tango and blues. Argentine blues? Mm, no, Argentine tango. Okay. 
She has raised an emu from a hatchling, been kicked and spat on by llamas, hey, me too, and been pounced on by a cougar cub. Not all at the same time. She lives in the Pacific Northwest, and she is the author of The Seer, which is now out at booksellers everywhere. Sonia, The Seer is a big, sweeping, high-fantasy novel that takes place over, I think it's about a decade or, or more. But we start in a small village, in the small village of Bartoros, I think it is, with a very young girl named Amarta. Can you tell us what's so special about her and what's going on in the hut she and her sister rent at the uh, the start of the book? Well, um, a moment before page one, uh, Amarta and her sister, her adult sister uh, and her sister's child, are all asleep in this tiny shack that barely keeps out the weather. Then. There's a pounding at the door. Boom, boom. What's been going on and why there's a knock at the door is that they sell Amarta's visions, her visions of the future, when they have to, to survive. Amarta is that good. She can predict things specifically. Uh, not always, not infallibly, but she knows things that she can't possibly know. And so people do come to them to hear to hear her tell them what will happen and, you know, when will the cow give birth, when do the trade wagons come, but this is dangerous to tell people their future. They don't always like the answers. And now they think Amarta knows their business maybe way too well. So that's why the three of them have come to this village, why they've gone from one village to another, because her reputation has spread and it hasn't always been favorable, a favorable reputation. Yeah. So they go to one place and stay a while and then move on after everybody gets... After everybody gets nervous about what she actually knows. Yeah. Because she tells the truth, right? I mean, that's the thing. is She's not a fortune teller in that she tells people what they want to hear. Yeah, she's, not quite, she's not quite that devious, yeah. And that's why there's a pounding on the door. Because yeah. her reputation is spread. So, who's pounding on the door? It's this big man with a really fine cloak. Oh, did you want to know more? Well, I think we should know more, yes. I don't think it's a huge spoiler if we tell a little bit at the beginning of the book, especially since a lot of it's on the jacket copy. So. There's that. There's that. Uh, the man's name is Inel, and he comes from the capital. He is um, he is close to the ruling family, and he is looking for answers that get him closer. Tell us a little bit more about he's he is part of this thing called the cohort, and to to Amarta he's like hugely wealthy beyond her her dreams, but he's not exactly highborn, right? Even though he's part of the royal court. Uh, tell us a little bit about I, that. And, and a lot of that comes out in this great short story you've done for the website as well. What's the title of that again? Touchstone. Touchstone, yeah. Touchstone is about, yeah, that's about how Enel and his brother come to the palace, how they're inducted into the cohort, how they meet the princess, and many of the other characters who um, are later active in the novel. Yeah, it's like a young Enel we meet there. So now he's a grown guy, very complicated guy, not entirely a nice guy, but not entirely an evil guy. 
explain how I guess the cohort works and who he is and and why it's important that he uh, visit Amarta here. Well, um, the cohort is a uh, centuries-old monarchy tradition, uh, a collection of children who are selected from the great houses of the empire and the aristocracy. They're all close in age to the presumptive heir or potential heirs of the throne, in this case, Cern, the king's daughter. Uh, And they're all raised together in a boarding school model inside the palace. And they're taught everything from economics to military arts to statecraft. Uh, a very competitive environment. Often the monarch's mate is taken from the members of the cohort, uh, and that's why Enel is here. The, the situation at the palace has become very tense. The king has made it clear that there isn't room for him and his brother, uh, and his brother is missing. So he has gone where he thinks his brother is, to see the seer. Well, what is um? All right, so the cohort is officially there to provide a, a pool of people who might be a mate to um to the presumptive heir. Do I have that right? Not just that. It not. It also gives. It, it also gives the children who will rule the empire and advise the monarch their early training, and it gives them all a huge advantage in that they will grow up together like siblings and know each other very very well. Okay, so that's the reason there's women in the cohort, which I I, worry, I wondered about at some time, point, I believe. Yeah, and somebody asked that very question in Touchstone, why are there women? And the answer is, well, the queen is going to need a lot of advisors and leaders um, and, and friends, people she can trust, people she knows. All right, so the, the kingdom here is Aruncal, Aruncal, how do we say that? We say Aaron Kell. Aaron Kell. So, if we can. At the start of the book, Resarn is the emperor and Cern is his daughter. Can you tell us a little bit about what kind of, I think he's emperor, right? What is he like and what's his relationship with Cern? Well, he's a king, not an emperor, but, you know, empire, ruler, titles, whatever. Yeah. And um, he's, he's really like. The Hobbesian monarch. He's not like any kind of constitutional monarch. Um, he is not a constitutional monarch. It's a it's it's an inherited monarchy. And his word goes right. He's well, you know it it um it sees if you if you look at it, it looks like a a, a classic monarchy right from the first. Um, but it's also. It's also partly an oligarchy. It couldn't survive without the ongoing support of the eight great houses, mm-hmm. each of which has various crown-granted charters for areas of industry and production, and each of which has its own internal culture, financial, sports team, etc. They're sort of like corporations, really. Um, or the Politburo. There you go. What's Rosarn's character like? He's um... Well, he's ruthless. Yeah. Not a very nice person. If you understand his history, it makes a little more sense. He was raised by the uh, ruthless and yet very successful grandmother queen who selected him over her own children. He is also very successful himself as a monarch, except in the one way 
unlike his grandmother, who had many children, and his own parents, who had plenty. He has been unable to make more than one single child, his daughter CERN. So CERN has been raised as the presumptive uh, queen her whole life. And now his, his goal, ultimately, is to wed her, right? That's, or that is possibly one of his goals. What in the world does he find attractive about her, if he does any? Just raw power? That would be plenty, yeah. I mean, that would be plenty for him to find her attractive. But it isn't just CERN. This isn't, this isn't just about, about his relationship with her. It's about his relationship with his, his past, his relationship with his brother, his relationship with the one thing that he has been studying to be his entire life, which is part of this ruling, this ruling structure, part of the aristocracy. And he's gotten very good at it. Um, um, he's very good at it. He's got spies, right? He knows how court works. He's had to. Yes. So what's it like in the in the interior of uh, the Arankel court? There's a lot of intrigue. There's a lot of back-channel communication. There's a very large amount of, um, of attention paid to the interests of the great houses and their industry and their production and their politics. So there are a number of intersecting circles of influence. It's a little different from classic European monarchy. Um, for starters, it's much more gender neutral. You'll see women in powerful positions all through the houses, the military, and the monarchy. While bloodlines do matter, they're, they're not the sole determinative of the position that someone can achieve. So we've got this um, this Machiavellian situation. We've got Enel who needs to know something from our seer. There's lots more that's, I mean, this is a wonderfully constructed world here. I particularly like the fact that blonde-haired, blue-eyed people are in the uh, minority in Aaron Kell. And finally, my type, or my former type, since I have gray hair now, uh, get to claim victim status. So... There's a, I mean, it's it's a rough world. There's a grisly scene that illustrates that. Can you tell us a little bit about what what's one of the prejudices, the particularly the golden one about the uh, about blondes, <laughs> and how does Ressarn test that with NL? I think we could talk about that. You, if you think it's not giving too much away, I'm happy to. The blonde-haired, blue-eyed Northerners, they're imported as slaves from another continent. They're rare, they're startling in their appearance. And there is a folk story uh, among the Arankin that the reason that they have gold hair is that inside their bodies is actual gold, which is quite valuable. So blonde slaves have to be guarded carefully for their own protection. Uh, and the king himself has many of them. In one flashback, we watch as King Restarn tests this folktale. And tests it in a grisly way. So, outside of the monarchy and the, the court, tell us how the, the kingdom, the empire, it's got economic problems as at the start of the book, some political problems, and especially economic. What's going on in the world outside? Well, it's a very large empire and control can fray at the edges. It was built 
by conquest, and the indigenous people conquered and assimilated are not always perfectly either conquered or assimilated. Many resent the tight control of the empire, uh, and the empire the empire is divided by historically created provinces, and not all of them feel the same loyalty to central authority. One of the main stakes in the book is the fact that the empire might very well collapse and chaos ensue, that there are processes at work that are causing it to um, be very shaky, right? Yes. So that's that's the thing that CERN and if you know gets to gets to marry her, which we don't know, would have to deal with, and it would it and it could mean the end of everything that they've known. Yes, it could definitely mean the end of the monarchy if they don't they don't handle things just right. There are a number of forces in play, and yep. the fear is the one that walks through all of them. It might be useful if you happen to know somebody who could see the future in some degree, right? I mean, you might think it would be useful at least. Yes, you would think so. You would think so. Sometimes so, it is, and sometimes it isn't. Yeah. If the kingdom is, is collapsing around you, I guess that would be a straw you might grasp at. So, some other characters in the book. We have more, this is a sort of a vast tapestry of a fantasy novel. So tell us about Tear. Who is he? What does he do? And how did he get to be so darn competent? Terry, I, Terry. Terry. That's all right. Terry is a mercenary. Um, he's been trained from childhood to the various arts of fighting, disguise, theft, assassination. And when Enel wants to hire the best to get a Marta, he's told there's no one better. What's interesting about Terry is that he's not arrogant, despite knowing that he's the best. And the reason for that is because he's been taught that pride can get in the way of his work. So he, he sort of epitomizes the egoless warrior, though, of course, he's not quite egoless. He was trained to the work as a child uh, and has a particularly good, well-suited personality for it. Luffy we'll at least one flashback about his early life and his training. How did he get so competent? Practice. Lots of practice. Yeah, and facing rather brutal consequences if he didn't uh, succeed. Yes. So, Terry, what does NL hire him, NL to hire Terry to do specifically? I mean, this is the, the driving engine of the first part of the book. What makes it so much fun? Get the girl. Yeah. Right. Get Get the girl. Which should be pretty straightforward, given that she's a child with no martial training at all, and Terry is, he is, well, the best. So, we don't want to give too much away, obviously, but I, the scene that sold me on the book is this first encounter between Terry and Amarta. Can you tell us a bit about that moment and describe the action? Well, Terry's been hired to acquire Amarta and, and bring her back. All of her, if he possibly can. <laughs> mm. At least the parts that can predict the future. Uh, Imarta does not see him coming, and why not? Because by this time she's torn off the whole vision thing completely. So he gets pretty close before she notices. I don't think you want me to give away more than that. Well, um, I mean, I have mentioned in the podcast the, the scene where they first meet and talked about it a little bit. Can you, um, no, I mean, you don't have to go into the particulars, but the 
the basic point is is that he's really the best and she can see the future when she wants to very accurately and so it's sort of this fight right between two people who can't lose right it is a it is well it is a fight between two people who can lose but they're not going to lose in the predictable way I love the scene because she's, you know, he's doing something tricky and deadly, but she sees it moments beforehand. And you can just imagine how frustrating this must be to Terry. Yes. Uh, frustrating and a new experience. In, in this world, while many people claim to be able to see the future, because after all, in any world, there are people who have hunches and senses. It's rare, very rare to find somebody who can see it this accurately. So this encounter between the two of them really shows how fast both of them have to learn to adjust to something that they've never experienced before. For him, it's somebody who really can see the future, who can't face him except by virtue of that ability. And for her, it's somebody who's coming after her and is that good and that close. So, well, we'll leave it there. Another wonderful character in the series. I mean, there's just so many. Maris is a mage. Her name is Maris. And, or is it, am I pronouncing that wrong? You know, I've read this book five or six million times. And I I haven't got the, I've only read the character's names. How do we say uh, Marisol's name? That's perfect. Oh, good. I got one right. Okay. So she's a mage in this world. Mages are pretty powerful beings, right? Can you tell us a little bit about their history and maybe you mentioned the glass planes? The mages are dangerous. And when they fight, everyone around them who isn't a mage suffers. And the glass planes are a good example. There were three cities before the mages showed up there uh, and had their altercation. Countless farms, many, many, many people. And now it's miles and miles of dead, glassy land. Mages are powerful and dangerous, but fortunately for the population at large, they're also very rare and not at all easy to create. The Aaron Kell Empire attempts to control magic within its borders by outlawing it. Uh, it, it turns out that's uh, not very effective. Tell us about how Maris was, uh, how she apprenticed and how she came to be. What's her relationship with her, uh, she called her master her auteur? Auteur. So I like your pronunciation, too. Uh, her relationship with her teacher is strained, uh, or was strained when they had a relationship at all. She hasn't seen him in decades, uh, actually not since she finished her apprenticeship uh, and was created a mage. She's made a point of avoiding him all that time. The process of becoming a mage, the apprenticeship, it's, it's always a challenging experience, it's sometimes a deadly experience, but Marisol's relationship with her teacher was particularly difficult, and the last thing she wants to do is see him again. Yeah, I mean, he he drove her parents bankrupt, for instance, just sort of to teach her a lesson, <laughs> to keep her at it, right? Well, that's certainly part of it. He charged for her apprenticeship, and he charged them enough that it was everything they owned. Uh, and, and part of the reason the... he, at least part of the reason he claims he did that, and here we are giving something away, but that's okay, is uh, to keep her engaged. Yeah. Make, uh, to make the investment high enough that you don't walk away. Yeah. Well, his name is Kira Tura, her, uh, her old master, right? 
he shows up in the book as well. Um, and he's a great kind of grumpy uh, and powerful and scary character. What can mages do? What are some of their powers? Well, we see her, we see Maris sink etheric fingertips into uh, a boy, a young boy, to see how, how his health is, how his blood is flowing, how his heart is beating. We, we see her, we see her take lives by reaching those same etheric fingers in to somebody and taking away their consciousness uh, and then taking away their lives. There's um, there's a lot of other things that mages do. I I, I don't want to make it a long litany, but she talks um, she talks at one point about how she freezes a she freezes somebody rather than show him something beautiful uh, or impressive like a rock sparking, you know, making a light or following ants following her finger. And she scares the hell out of him when she freezes him. Yeah, but keep in mind that Morris is a a young mage. She's only what, you know, and 60 or 70, something like that. Something like that. But we'll see. We also see Kiratura do some magic later, and he is not a young mage. So um, this is the world that Amarta, our very young, very poor young lady who's, who only has the one uh, extremely powerful talent, but not much else except her basic kindness and goodness, um, is up against. She's got these mages. She's got a court that wants to make use of her as a tool. She's in a scary situation once they know about her, right? Yep. She's running. She's running from a lot of powerful forces. Tell us a little bit about the subcultures and the subplots, the minor characters. I mean, it's just, this is a very deep world. Tell us about, is it the um, the gypsy-like characters? Are they the Amendi? The Amendi. The Amendi are, are the escaped and and born free slaves, the blonde. They are the, and they, um, you are thinking of the ones that are in the settlement of Kusan. Yeah. Kusan is an underground city. I love Kusan. <laughs> it's based on an actual underground city in Turkey that's survived mostly hidden for, we're guessing, 5,000 years. Uh, you have to go look at the pictures. It, it's it's astonishing. It goes down 20 levels. It was able to, to block invaders. It had a system, a water system. You can't make this kind of stuff up. It's an, anyway, that's Kusan. Um, and what was your question? Well, it's just, um, so there are escaped slaves. There's, um, there's another group, the Teva, or the Teva. Yes. Uh, the Teva are one of the indigenous tribes who were there when the Arankel came as conquerors. They managed to keep control of their own lands, and uh, how they did that we find out a bit more about in the novel. And they're, uh, they're small people, they're, and they ride small horses, so it's easy to underestimate them. But they are actually astonishingly good warriors. Their, their, their mounts, their war ponies, the, the Shioda are freakishly intelligent and strong and agile, and the riders have a very close relationship with them. Um, the monarchy has a trade, has a, a treaty with the Teva that goes back hundreds of years, but the monarchy has a tendency to forget why they decided to allow the Teva to be sovereign within the borders of the empire. Uh, and sometimes the Teva have to remind them. 
So we don't want to give too much away, but Amarta will meet some of these folks. If a seer were to be used by a king or general, how would that work? How much can a powerful seer see? Does she see specifics or generalities? And what kind of questions might you ask if you wanted to, to get something that would be helpful if you were a general? Yes, these are exactly the right questions. What does it mean to see into the future? And as the author, I, I realized that I had stepped into a very large pile of metaphysics with this one. To see into the future, it implies significant truths about the nature of reality, causality, determinism. And these are the same hard questions that the characters themselves face, uh, Amarda in particular. My characters, they, I want my characters smart and insightful, smarter than me if I can if I can possibly swing it. And all these questions about how it works, how to get the best answers, is there only one future or are there many? These are all questions that I bring out in the story that are asked by my characters. Any question I had went into the story. Someone asked it. Any any test I could devise or strategy to understand her or track her, somebody else asked, somebody else, somebody else tried. I mean, the hard part with a precognitive character is this. If she can see into the future, what kind of conflict is truly possible? Why doesn't she just foresee the problems and avoid them? Why didn't she see it coming? And that answer became part of the story. Yeah. Well, that's what's so fun about the book, is that is that often Amarta creates more troubles for herself and the others than she solves. That's sort of the nature of the beast of being a seer, right? It, it is indeed, because the map is not the territory. You can see where what where you're coming up. You, know, you can imagine someone walking around, holding a map in their hands and tripping over things, because they're not looking at the, the, the land itself, but only the map. Yeah, well, that used to happen to me and Boy Scouts all the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, let's talk about the genesis of, of you, Sonia, uh, or in Lyris. You and I have known each other a long time. We met years ago, but we um, we had several stories in the science fiction magazines back then, right? We were both publishing in Asimov and, and elsewhere. Yes. I guess we both went to Clarion West, right? Uh, yeah, we both went to Clarion West. That's how we met. Yeah, yeah. I'm not in the same year, but in one of the one of the attendant events. It's coming back to me now. <laughs> so... so it, I moved to Prague in New York, and we fell out for a couple of decades there. Um, not not that we had a falling out; we just didn't see each other. How did how did you come to write the seer, and what was the course of of your writing career? Um, well, I came to write the seer. I wrote I wrote the first scene. I was really I have a passion for taking a common cliche and seeing how deep and real I can make it. So. You know, story starts with a dark and stormy night and a pounding at the door, a girl, a young girl under threat, an implacable, capable mercenary. Uh, I wanted to bring it alive. I wanted to see what would happen to someone who could see into the future. And I wrote chapter one and thought it was a standalone short story. After gathering a few rejections, I decided to write chapter two. <laughs> so this started out as a short story. That's great. Yeah, it it started out as a short story, but it it wasn't it wasn't complete. And I wanted to know the backstory, what would ha what had happened, who was this man who had come to their door, what would happen next, and I kept writing. 
And then uh, it, it had an interesting uh, career at Bain here. I've, I mentioned before that on the podcast how I discovered how wonderful the book is. My interns were raving about it. You gave it to me. And sometimes when people hand me things or, or send me things from, uh, from cons, I'll, I'll let the, re- the interns do a reader report on them. And they just loved it. And so I, I had a look at it, and I was like, wow, I see what they were talking about. But we did do some, uh, we did do some back and forth revising along the way, right? I, that seemed to have been something you enjoyed more than most writers do. Or maybe you didn't. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, you were my editor and you were, you were able to call out all the things that the story was missing. So for me, it was a great opportunity and privilege to have you doing that and asking me um, to deepen things, to explain things. I I love that you called me on all my shortcuts. You know, every time I, I was sloppy somewhere, every time I decided, well, I'll just hand leave that one there, you said, no, 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 you won't. You'll, you'll, go, you'll go there and, and you'll make this real. Yeah, well, it's just because I was frustrated I, because I wanted to see those, <laughs> that stuff. I figured you knew what it was. And that and that was great. That was perfect. And so so I, I I did get a chance to make the book the best it could be by working with you on it. Uh and and that was a real privilege. Yeah, I think it's a real gem of a of a debut novel and um it's it's really just a wonderful book. So the cover on the book is I think it is a Sam Kennedy cover, right? It sure is. How did you work with Sam on uh, on that? Bain, it's very unusual in that the authors often are contacted and in touch with the artists who do the covers of their book, and that does not happen in most of publishing. I know what a wonderful what a wonderful thing it was to hear from the artists that asked me about my characters and about what the palace looked like, what the what the the war ponies looked like. Uh, I gave him lots of details. I was delighted to work with him. It was a great a great experience, and the cover really reflects those conversations. In that Marta looks just like I had imagined her. Um, actually, I have a real-life person who is my Amarta, uh, who, who is 11, now she's, now, she's thir- now she's 13, but when I was working on early drafts, um, and she looks almost exactly like this girl. So it was a delight to see the pictures and say, yes, that is Maricel, yes, that is, that is, um, that is beautiful. I love the cover. There's a powerful figure in the background here, right? Who's that dude? The, the powerful figure in the background is Morris's teacher, Keratura. And you can you can see that there's all of this all of this action, this magic that's going to happen, this challenge that's gonna happen. Um and that's part of why I love this cover is how dynamic it is, how how full of motion while Amarta's right there in the center being. Yeah, well, that's why, that's why Sam makes the big bucks. <laughs> so, we do have Christopher Rocchio here, editorial assistant. Christopher Rocchio, do you have any uh, any questions for Sonia or comments on this here? Oh um, well, I haven't gotten to read more than the first chapter yet. I did really enjoy the first chapter. I just uh, you guys keep giving me other work to do. Oh, but I uh, we spoke a little earlier before the interview, Sonia, and I asked if there was anything 
that we hadn't planned for the uh, the interview, like uh, a question that you really, something about the book you really wanted to share with everybody. And I don't I don't know if you've had time to think about that, but is there something that we haven't addressed that you really think should be said? I know you said that was a horrible question, but it's a horrible question. Yeah, no, I, I, um, hmm. Well, is it if you read it backwards, does it exercise a demon? <laughs> yeah, if you read it backwards, it will it will give your demons some very intensive exercise programs, and you will end up with very strong demons who are who are able to meet you on the battlefield and truly test your mettle. Oh, okay. But that and has nothing it, to do with says, the story. Uh... <laughs> I'm, not, I'm sorry, I don't... No, that's uh, no, okay. And it says Paul is dead. Stay off hand. So, <laughs> so, what are you working on now, Sonia? Well, I, I am optimistically working on the multi-book sequel to Seer. Yay. Seer is a complete novel with a real ending. I want to stress that. That's essential to me. It's really, it's part of the contract that I have with the reader to bring the story to a solid close. But just like chapter one, well, the previous chapter one, there's lots more, be there's lots more to go. There's lots more potential. And I wanted to see whether or not I could take that into a complete arc, not, you know, an open-ended ongoing series, but a complete arc. And the answer is yes, I can. Well, there's, there's so much of this world that, that will be fun to explore and bears more exploration. And there just seems like there's so many stories here to tell. The book is The Seer by Sonia Oren Lyris. It is at booksellers everywhere now. Sonia, thank you very much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. The radio was a blue satellite phone with no markings on it. Steve set the toy on autopilot and hit the only number listed. Strategic armaments control, is this Commodore Wolf? Roger, Steve said. Stand by, please. There was a click. Wolf? Roger? This is, quote, Blount, Commodore. My actual name is Frank Galloway. Prior to the plague, I was one of several people rotated to secure points to act as NCCC in the event of something like, well, this. Zombies high on the list of possible problems? Steve asked. No, Galloway said. Not really. And to give you an idea how bad it is, I was number 126 on the list. The current commander of the Joint Chiefs is a brigadier. 
and you can guess how low the rest of the people are. The reality is that there probably are other survivors higher up the chain. There may even be functioning secure points which have just lost Kamo. But, but possibly not, Steve said. CDC is still there as well, and several other nations have maintained at least one functioning fraction of their former government. Russia, notably. One of the reasons we haven't called you back is that we've been getting flack from the Russians. They're insisting on equal access to the vaccine. I don't have an issue with that, Steve said. I mean, I'm not some sort of transy, but right now there's no real point in worrying about borders. They're basically gone. My Russian counterpart is an interesting chap, Galloway said. He stated that Russia is no more, and that it is again the Soviet Union, and that absence supplying all his nuclear vessels with vaccine, immediately he will solve our zombie problem with nuclear strikes. What? Steve said. I'd appreciate you keeping that to yourself, Commodore, Galloway said. As I said, the reason you've been out on a limb is that we didn't have a secure line. I had considered this method earlier, but it was not... I should have done it sooner. I apologize. While this is not exactly a busy job, it's not all beer and skittles. Going to have to leave that in your lap. Sorry, Steve said. Any idea if this cruise liner has an x-ray machine? It does, Galloway said. But the overall lab supplies and equipment will be minuscule. And the nearest hospital ship with one is in the very South Atlantic. It was on its way from the I.O. when the plague broke out, and it managed to still get contaminated. Do you think you can clear a land area? Depends on how large, Steve temporized. And right now, no. But I have some notional plans for clearing. Say, small towns that are remote from major infected prisons. Guantanamo Bay, Cuba had barely 9,000 personnel, Galloway said. However, it had been upgraded to support not only the detainees, but as a support base for disasters in the Caribbean region. Also, sometimes there were refugees with medical conditions from those disasters who needed a better hospital. If there wasn't a hospital ship available, they could be treated at Gitmo without bringing them to the U.S. So a second hospital was built, which has a full epidemiological lab. It should have everything you need to produce attenuated vaccine. However, there is a significant infected presence on the base. I think I can clear it, Steve said, rubbing his chin. Possibly. Probably. How? Galloway asked. Well, you have information I need, Steve said. Is there a large source of 50 caliber ammunition somewhere nearby? At sea, I mean? I'm thinking of a sea lift ship. There aren't any on the AIS I've got, but that's not complete. AIS stops working when the ship does. Stand by. There is a marine amphibious assault carrier, the Iwo Jima, approximately 800 nautical miles southeast of Bermuda. According to my senior marine, that would have a large store of 50 caliber. You need 50 caliber to take Guantanamo, I take it. Mount 50s, water cooled, at the level of the docks, Steve said. Make lots of light and noise overnight, open fire at dawn, then continue clearance on land. If there are survivors in the Iwo Jima, 
that would increase our chances. So far, we've only found one life raft from the Iwa. Most of them probably went east of Bermuda, and we've been searching west. God knows I could use some marines, as well as trained navy people. The question of your ability to prepare the vaccine has been raised again. Is your tech... Without naming any names, or... Ah, skip that. Can he or she do it? Quality control is the issue, Steve said. We have the recipe, if you will, but the doctor checked the quality and we won't have the materials or equipment he had. Then again, we don't know what we're going to get off this cruise ship. In terms of help, that is. There are people alive. Yes, we're getting a live feed from the Dallas, Galloway said. Some of them could be doctors, Steve said. Biologists or MDs. Possibly, or not. That's the problem with making plans with this job. You never know what you're going to get. You change your plans on the basis of whatever shows up, however it shows up. Fortunately, my master's is based on that. Excuse me? Galloway said. Have you ever wondered why my daughter is called Faith? Steve said. I had assumed you were a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Galloway said. Or at least that was suggested by one of my advisors. Never saw it until after she was born, Steve said. My master's was on logistics in a low support condition, specifically keeping the Gloucester gladiators flying on Malta during the siege. I have a lot of history, but stand by. Ah, my senior Air Force advisor just filled me in. Faith, hope, and charity. I see. Three obsolete biplanes faced down the Luftwaffe for nearly two years and kept flying, sir, Steve said. Their crews had to make parts from scrap metal. Parts would come in for hurricanes. Hurricanes. They didn't see their first hurricane until 1943. So they would rework hurricane parts to work in Gloucesters. They would beg, borrow a steel, rework, refit, literally use chewing gum when they had chewing gum. That makes sense, Galloway said. I guess you are well prepared for your current situation. Does your Air Force advisor know which aircraft had the most kills, sir? That never missed so much as one battle. She admits that as a bomber pilot, she'd sort of considered them the bad guys, so no. Put it this way, sir, Steve said. Whenever they went to battle, they always had faith. We decontaminated everything, Sophia said over the loud hailer. The submarines had taken the lifeboat alternative although it was a Zodiac with an outboard. They waved as the packet of vaccine floated towards them. Thanks for the assist, Faith said, waving back. It had been quite an assist. First, the Dallas had approached to within a few hundred meters of the cruise ship. The sub was also dwarfed, but the sail was fairly high. Then a team clad in MOPP gear came out on the sail. The team first mounted their machine gun, then set off multiple flares, as well as repeated blasts from a loudhaler. The combination had drawn a large herd of zombies to the lifeboat deck. After there was a fair concentration, the team opened fire. Much of the fire had struck the side of the ship. But quite a bit managed to hit the zombies. It had taken about 30 minutes of short bursts and two barrel changes, but they finally cleared all of the obvious infecteds from the lifeboat deck. Then the team clambered down, 
got out the Zodiac and the boarding ladder and approached the ship. Getting the lineup would probably have been the tough part for the wolf crews. The submariners made it look easy. Among other things, they used a line thrower. But Hooch had explained that that was not usually considered the easy way. With the ladder in place, they backed off to pick up their vaccine. We gotta get in there before more zombies come around, Faith said. Da said wait till he got here, Sophia said. Bring us in close, Faith said, picking up the radio. Toy, she-wolf, Da, are you there? Roger, Steve said, closing your position. ETA, one hour. Da, the Dallas cleared off a deck and put in a ladder. If we wait, the zombies are going to come around again. You know how they are. Permission to, I don't know, get a foothold is what Soph just said. Steve thought about that and looked at Stacy. She was looking at him and bending her head as if waiting for a punch. Do you have a backup plan? Steve said. No, but I've got lots of guns and knives and a machete. I'm still looking for a chainsaw. Sir, the chief of boat senior NCO of the Dallas said, standing at parade rest, might I suggest with no disrespect that it is unseemly for a commander in the United States Navy, skipper of this mighty engine of war, to literally roll around on the deck laughing? Authorized. And you had better be okay when we get there, or I'll tan your hide. Yes, mother, Faith said. She wolf out. Hey, Hooch, let's lock and load. Let me go first, at least, Hasianic said. Hooch, you're a Marine, Faith said, tightening the strap on her helmet. She was wearing what had become her standard extreme zombie fighting kit. Tactical boots and tacticals. Firefighting bunker gear. Nomex head cover tucked under the collar of the bunker gear. Full face respirator. Helmet with integrated visor. Body armor with integral molly. Knee, elbow, and shin guards. Nitrile gloves. Tactical gloves. Rubber gloves. Assault pack with hydration unit. Saiga shotgun on friction strap rig. A 45 USP in tactical fast draw holster. Two 45 USP in chest holsters. 14 Saiga 10-round 12-gauge magazines, plus one in the weapon. Nine pistol magazines in holster, plus three in weapons. Kukri in waist sheath, machete in over-shoulder sheath, right. Halligan tool in over-shoulder sheath, left. Tactical knife in chest sheath. Tactical knife in waist sheath. Bowie knife in thigh sheath. Calf tactical knife times two. A few clasp knives dangling in various places. There was the head of a teddy bear peeking out of her assault pack. And you're grown up. That says you should go, but you're also not back in shape. It's been a while since you've done a boarding ladder. You're still in training at zombie killing, and I've done these things a few times lately. Just make damn sure the soft part of the boat stays under the ladder. And if I drop in the drink, you'd better get me in fast, okay? No, but I guess you're in charge. Damn straight, Faith said, clipping the safety line to her waist. And no paying attention to my butt. Keep your mind on the job. Yes, ma'am, Hooch said. Here goes nothing, Faith said, jumping up and grabbing the ladder. Faith, you've already got company, 
Sophia called from the Endeavor. One male, decent shape. No worries, mate, Faith muttered to herself. I hate heights. Make that two. Easy, as long as I don't look down. Four. Six a dollar. Five. Target rich environment. More. You have got to be shitting me, Faith said, keying her radio and whispering. She was nearly to the top of the ladder. I think they're feeding on the ones the Dallas shot. Okay, Faith said, looking up at where the grapnel was connected to the bulwark. She could hear them. Okay, what's my backup plan? Oh, fuck it. She keyed her iPod and rolled over the bulwark. Oh, shit, no, Sophia said, as Faith clambered the rest of the way up the boarding ladder and rolled over the side of the ship. She could see more zombies moving towards the piles of dead. No, no, no. Faith straightened up and started firing her Saiga to aft, which was great, except for the zombie that appeared from behind cover to her rear and tackled her. Hooch, get up there, Sophia screamed over the loud hailer. The marine started to climb the ladder, painfully slowly. Faith suddenly reared up into sight again, a pistol in her hand and firing into the deck. She stomped once or twice, then turned with her back to the landing ladder and fired one-handed to aft, where the zombies were closing, and pulled another pistol out and fired forward, turning her head from side to side like she was watching a Wimbledon match. She was missing a lot, but zombies in view were dropping. Unfortunately, not enough, and she got dogpiled. Then she was up again, with a pistol in one hand and a kukri in the other. She slashed down with the kukri, kicked again, shot a couple more, and then went down, again. And back up, this time with the saiga. Got two more, went down. Back up, holding a zombie over her head, it had a tactical knife in its eye. The zombie went into the drink, and she went down again. And up again, Halligan tool and a two-handed grip pounding down, tackled. Okay, this fucking sucks. Faith panted over the radio. There was a background of constant snarls. Trying to reload your fucking pistol with a zombie biting your fucking ass fucking sucks. Quit chewing my ass, you dummy. There was an open circuit button on the radios for hands-free operation. Sophia realized that had happened to Faith's radio in the scuffle, and her sister didn't realize that she was broadcasting. Careful, 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 Faith. Don't shoot yourself in the ass. That would be embarrassing. There was a shot. Dinkum! I'm wearing fucking bunker gear, you dumb fuck. Two shots. You cannot bite through it. And that's my shin pad. Another shot. Ooh, I'll call you Melonhead. Let go of my arm or I'm going to. Oh, there you are, my rugged Nepalese beauty. What were you doing hiding under there? Come to mama. There, I cut off your hand. Happy now? Are you ready? Faith came up with a zombie on her back and shrugged it off spinning in place with the kukri and cutting its throat as she fired her forty-five into the back of one grabbing her waist. I am sick and tired of these motherfucking zombies on this motherfucking, she screamed at the top of her lungs.
Hasienic cleared the railing and finally saw what was going on. He clearly was frozen trying to figure out what to do. Pull zombies off Faith or engage the one still closing? Faith swung the halligan tool, jamming the claw hammer into a zombie's skull, then overbalanced and went down again. Get the others, Sophia boomed. Faith's doing fine. Bradburn waved a finger at the periscope repeater. COB? Sir? Remind me never to piss that young lady off. Yes, sir. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Rachel Mintel, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz, and the No Exit Marker from Hell for her sign collection, plus a Selkie delivering champagne and garlic cloves on a tray of ancient driftwood, plus plaudits, thanks, and praise to Sonia Oren Liris, author of The Seer. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. The Bane Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bane Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. <laughs>